And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we are in a series as we're walking through the book of Ephesians, and we're going section by section, and today we start chapter 2. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, there are at least sections of this passage that no doubt are dear to your heart. I mean, this, is a, this might be, it has to be, one of the richest, uh, most beautiful passages on what salvation is, what it means to be saved and how God saves his people. These 10 verses are so rich. And as we're walking through Ephesians, we're taking it section by section, but it's important to know that all of Paul's epistles are very logical. There's a flow to all of them. And so Paul, in a sense, is picking up on themes that he's already hit on before in weeks that we've dealt with prior to this, but then also he's introducing some very new things today. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, you'll see that he talks about walking in a certain way. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then if you look at verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So right here, it shows us, it's, it's capped off the beginning and at the end that there are, there's two different types of walking that Paul is going to talk about in this passage. There's two different types of walking, and there's also two different, you could say, groups of humanity. There is humanity apart from God, and there is humanity with God. And that's what Paul is basically talking about in this passage. Now, this passage is so rich, I, I easily could do four weeks on this, and probably longer if I really tried. And some preachers really take any passage and say that, this one it's actually true about. (laughs) I mean, if you just read it, it, you could go on for weeks, and we're going to do it in one week. And so no doubt about it, this will feel in some ways like an overview, but in other ways, I want to drill down very specifically for what I want us to see this morning. And I want us to see the two things I already pointed out from verse 1 and verse 10, and that is Paul talks about humanity apart from God, who's dead in sin, and Paul talks about humanity with God, who's alive in Christ. 
Paul's been talking about power that God has. And last week, we saw that this power is the type of power that raises Jesus from the dead. And one of the things he said about this power is that Paul wants us to know that that power is at work toward those who believe. And here is his first example of exactly how it works toward those who believe. How does the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead actually work towards you right now in 2018 at New City in Orlando, Florida, or me? So with that in mind, that question in mind, how does God's power in resurrection work towards us? Let's look at these verses. If you look at verse 2, you have something very unpopular, no doubt about it. Paul says, I'm sorry, verse 1, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Everyone in here is very much alive, it seems to me. So what is Paul talking about, that people are dead? Whatever he means, I think what we really want to know is how in any way is that relevant to you and to me as more than just a spiritual metaphor? Is it just a spiritual metaphor or is it something else? Is it something more than that? And we'll get to that. And that's actually what I want to drill in on. What does it mean biblically to be dead like this? But first, let's just look at two things he says. He says, you're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. A trespass is a false step. Okay, so a trespass involves either crossing a known boundary or deviating from a right path unknowingly. So imagine yourself on a hike and you're in a state park somewhere and you're walking on a path and all of a sudden you find yourself not seeing signs anywhere and you find yourself seeing the first sign in a while that says trespassing, you know, will be shot. Okay, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? Now, there's a way in which you can end up off the path into someone else's land on purpose or on accident. Either way, you would be trespassing. So trespassing is a false step, and that's what Paul's getting at here. You're on the wrong path. You're trespassing. Or, he says, you're also dead in your sins. And sins is a word that we are probably more familiar with, and that means missing the mark or falling short of a certain standard. So these two words together, Paul's giving us a full picture of what he means by dead in trespasses and sins. It accounts for both positive and negative, active and passive aspects of human wrongdoing. So that's to say we have, theologically speaking, sins of commission, things we decided to do that we chose to trespass or miss the mark on, or sins of omission, the things that are right, we just left them undone. So they're both accounted for, and both of them are symptoms of death in this passage. John Stott says it very succinctly. He says, before God, we were both rebels and failures. And so that's what Paul is getting at. The other thing he's getting at before we really drill into what does it mean to be dead, in verse 2, he says, you were dead in these trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So what Paul is describing here is you're not just dead in sins and trespasses, you're actually captive to a way of life. And particularly, there are three aspects that are holding you captive. There's the world, clearly, following the course of this world. There's the devil, the prince of the power of the air, and there's the flesh. These 
passions. He says this epithumia is the word. And the reason that even matters is because it's like addiction. We ha- our flesh is almost like this addicting reality to draw us with these hyper inordinate desires. Desires are good, but that's why I wanted to draw out what he's saying. He's saying it's almost we're addicted to trespassing. We're addicted to stepping out of line, to missing the mark. And so the key thought really to verses one through three, what it means to be enslaved is actually found in verse three when he says, you lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so this is not your physical body. Okay, he's not talking about your physical body. He's talking about another part of you. And this part of you called flesh influences, impacts, motivates both your physical body and your mind, right? So this thing called flesh in the Bible is affecting right now the way in which you use your physical body and the way you think about the world, what you want in the world. And so this is the thing that masters you. It's the thing that drives you and leads you. In the Bible, in the Bible, the experience of being dead in sin is the experience of the self-centered heart. It's the experience of every part of you, your body, your mind being turned in on itself. You see, this experience of being dead, this sinful heart will use everything, even God, to serve your passions. The person who's dead, it looked very much alive. And they may look very much well-adjusted to the world. They may be very successful. But internally, they're driven both in body and mind, Paul says, by the flesh, that part of them that is turned in on themselves. And oftentimes, I think when we read verses one through three, we think this person is a monster, right? You read this, you're like, you are dead, walking in trespasses and sins, followed, following the course of this world, following the devil. This person is a devil worshiper. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, right? They're carrying out their passions and desires of the body and mind. They're children of wrath. We, we tend to think of these types of people as not us. We tend to think of these types of people as those dictators somewhere else in the world currently and in the past and what we can imagine in the future, monsters. But in fact, while it is true that self-centeredness can make you cruel and evil, it's actually much more common that self-centeredness makes you incredibly moral. And the reason is, is because if you are dead in your sins and trespasses, you are curved in on yourself, everything is about you. And it's a great strategy to get people to like you, to serve you, to go along with you, if in fact you are moral externally. Isn't it? I mean, who likes a jerk? Not many people unless they have to. You see, it's a very great strategy, even when we're curved in on ourselves to be very moral. And, and it's driven by a lack, right? There are degrees of sickness. There are not degrees of death. I mean, you're, there's not, you're not kind of sort of dead. Maybe it's possible this person's dead. They're either dead or they're not dead. And so when you're dead, there is this huge gap in you that must be filled. 
And so, in a sense, those people, those of us who are, are apart from Christ, apart from God, this hole, this need for life must be filled. And Paul prayed last week that it would be filled by Christ, that he would be, he is the fullness who fills all in all. But if you're apart from Christ, what's going to fill this gap? You will work everything in your life to fill this gap. How can you describe this gap? I once heard Tim Keller share this illustration on a point similar to this, and I couldn't think of anything better. So I'll take it from him. You know the first movie, Rocky, right? It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember it. I remember the the awesome acting and such. And essentially, in that movie, Rocky is going to fight the world champ, and he does not stand a chance. And so there's a conversation where Adrian asks him, why are you doing this? Why are you going to fight? You know you can't win. And this is Rocky's answer. I just want to go the distance. Then I'll know that I'm not a bum. You see, that is a great but simple example of I am willing to get my face beat in for an hour so that if I go the distance, I can somehow have this small thing in me filled for a minute. He wasn't thinking about Adrian. He wasn't thinking about anyone else. He was thinking about himself. And I know that seems so twisted, but don't we do these types of things? We're willing to sacrifice so much in order to fill that hole so that we feel like, well, at least I'm not a bum. So what is that for you? What is that hole coming from deadness that really is motivated by self-centeredness? For some of you, it's perfection. On the outside, you look like a wonderful human being. But in reality, you really feel that unless you meet impossibly high standards, you are not worth anything. You hold yourself to those standards. You hold other people to those standards. And when you or someone else fails them, you feel intensely angry all about you. Some of you direct your energy towards helping others with their needs, and you're so good at it, but really it's because you need to be needed. That's why you do it. You're just trying, I'm not a bum. I'm not a bum. I'm not a bum. Right? I've I've heard a quote recently that says, I want to meet your needs, and I need to be the one who meets them. That's this person. Some of you feel deeply worthless. It could be because of your story. It could be because of your particular failures. And you therefore will become whatever you need to be in order to please others so that you can say, at least I'm not a bum. How are we to lean in to this gap, this deadness, this self-centeredness, right? Now, before I answer that question, I do need to say one thing, and that is, what is Paul not saying here? Some of you are thinking, listen, I get all of that, but isn't it better to be self-centered than to be a monster who actually does kill people? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, no one, Paul's not saying that everyone's as bad as they could be. Okay, in other places, there are doctrinal realities to answer the question as to why not everyone's as bad as they could be. This also doesn't mean that people don't have dignity. Of course people have dignity. All human beings are created in the image of God and deserve by that right. You don't own them. God owns them. God made them. And so the way that we respect other human beings, they deserve our respect and honor and dignity no matter what they believe. Okay, so these things are true. And yet what Paul is really speaking to is motivation. It's the internal reality of what drives all of us. You see, walking in sin and transgression, 
uh, is akin to a great Martin Luther quote. When Martin Luther in the 1500s was preaching through Romans, he has this quote. He says, Our nature, by the corruption of sin, is so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, it it rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. But it also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeking all things, even God, for its own self. You see, that's what I mean. I get this curved in image from Luther, from that quote. Apart from Christ, the Bible teaches us the only way that we can fill this void that Paul calls deadness. It's not just an existential reality. It's what you would call an ontological reality. It is an actual, true, legal sentence upon you that you are dead apart from Christ. And it comes with an experience of inwardness, of selfishness. So I want you to think right now, just for a second, through all the ways that people do even good deeds for themselves. I mean, we can imagine them. We already went through some of these. Maybe, how did you hold your tongue this morning against someone? Right? You, you, I'm not going to say it. It's not worth it right now. Why isn't it worth it right now? Because we got to go to church and look put together. That's why it's not worth it right now. I'll just pick on the husbands for a minute. I don't know if it's pick on, but uh, name. Uh, realities that happen, right? So you could be on your way, husband or wife, it really doesn't matter. And you can hold your tongue, but really it's because, you know, if I say this now, it will change the whole demeanor of the family. We won't be able to hide it when we walk in. And in reality, people will see that we're not put together. It's really about you and how people view you because you need that void filled, but only Christ can fill that void. And you see, it's miserable to live this way, isn't it? It's absolutely miserable to live apart from God where you are scrambling to fill this void. And I'll mention before we move on to the second part of the passage where we get to talk about humanity with God is the word wrath. Paul says something else striking in verse three. He says that those apart from God are by nature children of wrath. And I don't have time to go into it deeply. So I want to read a very helpful quote from John Stott on God's wrath. He says, God's wrath is not like man's. It's not bad temper so that he would fly off the handle at any moment. It's not spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation evil. Therefore, it entirely is predictable and it is never subject to mood or to whim. This is why I mentioned that before we make the transition. Being selfish like that, being turned in on yourself is not just a sin. It is a sin. It's not just miserable. It is miserable. It's also evil. And we don't tend to think about that, do we? It's evil because we are acting in an inhumane way in, in and before a God who made us to be humans who image him. And if we're turned in, we actually just image ourselves. 
We actually make everything about ourselves. We make life about ourselves. We make worship about ourselves. We make family about ourselves. We make calling and vocation about ourselves. Right? God doesn't call me to something now. My desired image calls me to a certain career, not God, when I am the center of all things. That's evil. The Bible calls that evil. And so, of course, we would want it to be dealt with as such. And so, in verses 1 through 3, we could go on, but we won't. Paul talks about humanity apart from God, which is dead in sin. And I hope that as we drill down on some symptoms of what it means to be dead, it'll seem less abstract to you. Okay, so that is why it's a miserable experience to be dead. But then, of course, the reason we love this passage, verses 4 through 10, he makes the turn with one powerful word, really two, I guess, but God. So commentators will pick up that this is such a striking, stark difference. You were dead. You were condemned. You were children of wrath. But God. And so in the rest of the passage, he talks about humanity with God, which is now not dead, but alive in Christ. And as you read verses 4 through 10, particularly 4 through 8, it's hard not to read them and think the theme is clearly saved. By grace, the phrase, we've been saved by grace. But we're Christians, we're supposed to know what that means, but do we know what that means? Do we actually live a life in line with what it means to be saved by grace? Because if we understand grace, all of a sudden we'll understand everything in life as gift. Everything. In a minute we'll talk about boasting, but let me tell you what it looks like to view all things in life as gift. We actually just came from Ecclesiastes, so we talked about gift. But particularly here, when we understand that we were dead and that God made us alive in Christ, all of a sudden, everything that we've ever accomplished looks really small. And we realize, you know, it actually isn't because I worked so hard. And that's offensive to us. It's really offensive to us because we divinize, we idolize success through hard work, don't we? We think that a little bit of God's love for us must be because we, we just did really well with the hand we were dealt. But that's not at all what a dead person does. A dead person doesn't play cards. A dead person doesn't have cards in their hands to play. A dead person's dead. A dead person needs to be brought to life. And only resurrection power can do that. And, and that, Paul says this. I mean, that's why he, he can't even stop himself in verse 4, right? Verse 5, I mean, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And you see those little dashes right there. He just jumps in on his own thought. He interrupts himself. And he says, well, it was by grace. It was by grace that you've been saved. Don't miss that. He gets back to his thought. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 8, he repeats how he interrupted himself again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he expounds. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. You see, the life apart from God where we're trying to fill that void is filled with that type of boasting. Right? Because what is boasting? Boasting is finding your security in something. And we all have to do it. We all actually boast in something. But life apart from God looks like boasting in, if you're a student, 
in your grades. Or if you're beyond student years, it's boasting in your career or your title or your salary or your retirement. What would that look like? It would look like hitting a rough patch in your life and saying, at least I have this in retirement. I mean, everything else can go to pot, but at least I have that. At least I can liquidate these assets so that I can still be okay. At least I still have this job. I may still have this title and people still respect me. I may be miserable, but at least, at least, at least. It's a life of scrambling. It's a life of moving to what is the thing that can fill the void? What is the thing that I can boast in? And Paul's saying, if you have life in Christ, you've given up boasting. Because that void that you're trying to fill has already been filled. That's what he said last week. That he who fills all in all would fill us to overflowing. The psalmist says, in God, we make our boast all day long. All day long. So even in those moments, when things are rough, you can boast in God the psalmist says. And the reason we all need something to boast in is because we do need something to be proud of. We need something that gives us a sense of value, a sense of strength. And this is why we boast in things. But what gives you your value? What gives you your strength? What gives you your security, your foundation? Where is your solid ground? That's your boast. And Paul is saying, when you understand grace, when I understand grace, the answer to that is the mercy of of God in Jesus Christ is my boast. There's nothing I can do to make this okay. No matter how much money I have in the bank, no matter what degrees I have, my boast all day long is in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. My boast is not in my religious experience. It's not in how optimistic I feel right now. It's not in how well or poorly things are going. Because you can boast and things are so poor and that's just another form of pride because it puts you at the center again. The only boast of the Christian is in the mercy of God and Jesus Christ. And this stops us from scrambling because that boast is there, as the psalmist says, all day long. And so again, Stott says, grace is shown forth in the fact that resurrection is out of death. There's nothing we can do there. Dead people don't make themselves alive. And creation is out of nothing. And that gets us to the next thing. You see, not only is Paul saying we are alive in Christ, I'm sorry, we're saved by grace, but we are alive in Christ. And so if we just read on through the rest of the passage here, verse four, he says that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you remember the, uh, last week when Paul said the power that God has working towards us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead? Look at this. He also raised us from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. You were raised from the dead. Jesus was set at the right hand of the Father. You were set at the right hand of the Father. How is that possible? Well, first, raised up simply means that because of Christ's resurrection, those of us who believe in him, 
We're given new spiritual life in this age. We call that regeneration. But we'll also be given renewed physical bodies when Christ returns. Okay, that's what it means that we're raised with Christ. But, but listen to this. He made us to sit with him in the heavenly places. What is the right hand of a king or in this place, God? What is that? Well, the ancients would have known clearly that the picture would have been of a conquering king. If, there is a, if there's a warrior who goes out to battle and they go out with their army and they lead their army to battle, that warrior would come back and be given the highest place of honor to sit right next to the king. And so Jesus goes out and Jesus gives his life and he dies and he defeats death. He defeats evil. He defeats sin. We talked about all this last week. And he gets to now sit at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling with him. But guess what? We are sitting with him. Do you think about that this morning? How can this be? Why would this be? This is where the imagination in the Christian life is so important. There are realities that the Bible tells us that we rely on the Spirit to shape and form our imagination, to believe God's Word over our own experience. And God's Word tells us that He has seated us in Christ as His body, because He's the head we saw last week, in our union with Him at the right hand of the Father, which means that we've been given some authority now, but we will reign and rule with God in Christ forever. Why would God do this? We were dead. Why did he even deal with us? Verse 7 tells us something about him. He did this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The reason God saved you is because he is immeasurably kind and merciful. He moved towards you for no other reason and that he wanted to pour out his overflowing kindness upon you. He took you up into himself through Christ because he's kind and merciful and rich in mercy. What will that do to your boast? I mean, can you imagine boasting in anything else except I sit at the right hand of God the Father in Christ Jesus as his body? If that's true all day long, why would I boast in anything? Whether it's how people view me or how helpful I seem to be to other people or how successful I am or how much money I have. I was talking to a man one time, an older man, and uh, we were talking about what it's like when you get older to finally not care what people think about you. And uh, I think it happens to some of us when we're younger. It depends on you know, what positions we're in and God's curriculum for our life. But I hope it happens to all of us at some point where we truly feel secure enough in who we are in Christ where we basically don't care what other people think. It doesn't mean we don't love them. In fact, you know, here, caveat, you really can't love people well until you don't care what they think in a sense. Otherwise you need them, right? I'm here to serve you but really, I, I need to serve you so that I can get from you what I need. It could be acceptance. Um, 
It could be uh, respect. You feel so disrespected in this part of your life that you go here and you demand respect. And and maybe it looks like good leadership, but actually you're using the people that follow you. You're using your children. So that's a caveat. My point is, there is an interesting relationship between truly loving and serving people and if you care what they think or not. And so I was talking to this man and he told me about a story. He was driving down a country road and thinking. He was, he was anxious and he was thinking and he was thinking. And he said, all of a sudden, something clicked in my heart and I realized it really doesn't matter what this person thinks about me. And then his mind was drawn to Colossians 3, which says that his life is Christ. And he looked at me and he said, you know, um, that's going to happen to you someday if it hasn't already. And when it does, it will be glorious. Because whenever you get into a situation where you do want someone to care, you you do care about how they feel or what they think about you, you'll think, that's nice. And that's respectful. And I'll receive that, but it's not my life. Christ is my life. That gap is already filled. Now I get to love them. Now I get to serve them. And that's really what he's talking about in verse 10 to close this down. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember at the beginning, we're walking in our own curved in dead slavery to the world of flesh, the devil. But now that we've been made alive in Christ, we've been filled. Every part of us now can be overflowing in Christ, who is our life. Now we get to move out into the world in a completely different lifestyle and a completely different type of walking. And these are in the good works that God has put before us. And so we used to walk in sin, curved in on ourselves. But now we can walk filled up with God's life Because we're recreated. And that's what he says. We're new creation. If you're created in Christ Jesus, that's a new creation. You've been made new. In 2 Corinthians, he says new creation, right? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the word for workmanship is another type of word for creation, but it is more poetic. Interestingly, uh, some people will point this out. The word is sort of where, where we get the word poem. So people will say, we are his workmanship. He's crafted us as a piece of art uniquely so that we can walk in the way and good works that he's put before us. And the beautiful thing is, is when we're no longer curved in on ourselves, we can actually pay attention to the world and we can walk out in newness of life, offering life to others in all things. And I'll close with this. God has entrusted to us a message of good news, which, is to offer, which offers life to the dead releases the captives, and forgives the condemned. Every single one of us needs that. So any of us who have received that, life from the dead, release, we're no longer captives, and given new life, we need to go offer that day in and day out. You see, salvation is really this. Sin is substituting ourselves for God. And salvation is when God substitutes himself for our sin. Only he can do that. Only he can fill the gap. Only he can change us. Let's pray together.
Father, we come to you now asking you that you would, in fact, help us, that you would help us form imaginations that can believe and see that our union with Christ and what you say about us is more real than how we tend to view ourselves. We ask that as we respond now in song and giving, that you would point out very specifically in hope those areas that we're boasting in that are not you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.